Now, gracious Father in heaven, we do come before you in the sweet and precious name of Jesus Christ, who is the chief magistrate of all. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have been pleased to establish him on your holy hill and to give him all authority in heaven and on earth, Lord, and the nations as his inheritance, O Lord, for his uh, full and complete obedience, Lord, to your covenant. We are thankful that we have this opportunity to consider these very important and vital truths, Lord, particularly in our day where so many Christians are floundering and just, Lord, wondering what to do and how to make sense of the problems that we face in this world. So, Lord, we pray that in some even small way we would be able to answer some of those questions and to lean upon your word for wisdom and understanding in all of our ways that we would acknowledge you and bring you glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now, Psalm 2, let me begin reading the very, the whole Psalm. So beginning at verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, beloved, as I have said to others this afternoon, it's not my goal to be redundant or somehow um, over-repetitive um, in repeating myself, but at the same time, I want, to speak, I want to repeat myself enough so this stuff does distill down into your mind and heart. The biggest takeaway that I hope that we walk away with every Sunday afternoon is wow, this is, this is biblical. How did I miss it? How did I, you know, how, how is it that I'm just now coming to this fuller understanding of a Christian worldview? And it's easy to do. It's easy to do because of the religious climate that we live in, that we grow up in. Um, Christianity uh, in one sense, is not for this world, it's for the next world. And so many Christians have robed themselves 
into believing and robe themselves into this idea that, well, somehow we're just biding our time until we get to heaven, that this really doesn't matter what we do here. And that is heresy. That's a lie. And it has, it has had great negative impact upon the world that we live in, particularly among us as a, as a modicum of a Christian nation because of our law system and because of those benefits and principles that were advocated when this nation was founded. I know some of you raised your eyebrows when I brought in the Crusades and I talked about the Christian West and that, that idea. Um, again, I guess I need to say something to the effect of uh, helping you mitigate some of the pushback that you may receive from others when they talk about, oh, when you talk about a Christian uh, state or you talk about a um, Christian West, you're talking about uh, a, a time where the church is dominant, well, that's just not true. I mean, we don't, ha- we don't have a problem with a dominant church, but we have a problem with a tyrannical church, but that's not the Christian West. The Christian West, when we talk about the Christian West and we talk about Western civilization, we're talking about a, a Christianized worldview that encompasses art, healthcare, um, politics. It encompasses um, uh, education. Uh, certainly it encompasses a religion because in, a, in our worldview, we assume everybody's religious. It's just like we talked about this morning. It's not a question of if you're religious. The question is, well, who do you serve? Who do you worship? Who do you obey? Whose laws do you keep? That's the question. It's not only the question that we can ask on a very individual level, personal level, but that's a question we can ask to any government, any state. Who do you obey? And um, I think, and that's always the telltale sign. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, I wanna just read a portion of the end of that chapter and just highlight a couple of things that may actually, um, well, may surprise you. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, in the Hebrews chapter 11, it is known as the roll call of faith or the, the hall of faith, if you will. And it's a, it's a catalog of, of those saints that from days of old that had faith in God and accomplished, well, amazing things, all right? But look with me at verse 30, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter and stop and just make comment. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, what was the encircling of Jericho? Well, it was a military campaign, okay? It was a military campaign. And what the, uh, the New Testament writer, the author of the New Testament book is telling us that this is part of the kingdom of God. This is part of God's plan. This is part of God's will, that it was a, a just war, if you will. 
He goes on and says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. What did Rahab do in welcoming the spies? She lied to the civil magistrate. And what was the civil ma- what was the question she answered wrongly uh, when the civil magistrate confronted her? Where were these men that we saw in your in your apartment? Where did they go? She misled them and told them they went in the wrong direction. So we see there that Rahab is mentioned in this that she had misguided this civil magistrate who sought to do what? Who sought to do God's people harm. Verse 30 um Uh, Verse 32, and what more shall I say for the time will fail me? What he says is I have a whole lot more to say. I tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jepheth, of David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, obtaining promises, shut the mouth of lions. We talked about Daniel last week in disobeying the civil magistrate when they commanded him or when they, when uh, they advised, uh, an edict made an edict that he should not pray. They couldn't pray to anything but the civil magistrate. Daniel said, no, I'm going to pray to God like I always do. Um, that's a reference to that. Quenched, verse 34, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now, I mean, just, does this sound like modern day? Doctrine? I mean, does it sound like anything that a modern day church would? I mean, this would be, this is repulsive to the modern day mind. How dare you? Why? Because they have, they have drunk, they have become intoxicated upon the doctrine of tolerance. And they don't understand tolerance, not from a biblical perspective. But from the world's perspective is that Christian, Christians are forced and pushed to exercise tolerance, which means don't do any of these things and allow the, the, the evil one to continue to push back on the church till it's non-existent. I mean, brothers and sisters, God's people have a right to defend themselves. That was part of the crusades. They have a right to draw swords when drawn swords are drawn against them. And that shouldn't even be a question. Why should it not even be a question? Well, because we believe in the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. That commandment gives every person a right to defend their person. And not just to defend themselves, but defend others who are in need of defending. And that's the second table of the law, interestingly enough, where there are some Christians saying, well, I'm all for the second table of the law, but we should never, ever, uh, the civil magistrate should never even touch the first table of the law. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I mean, once, once, listen, based on everything we've been learning, what should a civil magistrate, when they come in contact with the truth, what's one thing a civil magistrate ought to do? Acknowledge that there is a God and he is the true and living God. 
You say, well, that sounds just harsh, you know. Listen, that's true of everybody. That's true of everybody. Can you imagine? I mean, listen, illustrate it this way, and you would go, that's crazy. But um, illustrate it this way. Imagine a father and a, a husband and wife, father, mother, come to faith. Can you imagine going to church, praising God, learning, just being discipled at church, and then going home and absolutely living like a pagan? Never praying, never singing, never praising God, never bringing that gospel into the confinements of the home itself. What would we say about that? We would go, well, that's not real. But you would assume that they would, one would translate to the other. It's the same way with a Christian magistrate. It's the same way with anyone who would profess to know God, to believe in Jesus, and then go right into, and I'm going to, we're going to look at some scriptures here in a minute, and go right into the civil realm and ignore him. It's absurd. It's dangerous, as Psalm 2 tells us. It causes God to scorn from heaven. And, and we'll look at that. But what I wanted to do is read to you this portion of, of Hebrews 11 and, and just notice the language. And notice how offended most modern-day Christians are with this language. And it's right there in the New Testament. This isn't Old Testament. This is the New Testament. And now, did, did, it, did, it, go, did it always go smoothly for God's people? Well, not, not always. I mean, it tells us that many of them perished. It says, the women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. That's rough. That's, that's hard times. They were stoned, they were sewn in two, or sewn in two. We believe Isaiah was cut in two. Um, not, a, not a good way to go. N- not a good way to go. Um, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. Now, he's not trashing this world, but what he's saying is the condition that this world is in wasn't worthy of men like that. Those men were far morally superior than their time. And that might be some of you in our time. And I don't want you to get discouraged by that because you're not the first. And you probably won't be the last. And all these things having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us, that is the New Testament, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They had to wait. They had to wait. They didn't have what we have. You go back to Psalm 2. This... The first three verses sets up the idea that they have come in contact with the living God and they don't want him. They don't desire him. They do not want 
his law and they want to put it away from them. And it's clear who this psalm is addressed to. He's addressed to the kings of the earth, the rulers. Look at verse 10. Therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the civil magistrate. He's not talking to the everyday Christian. He's not talking to the pew sitter. He's talking to the civil magistrates. Now, who who has the authority to do that? God does. God has the right and the authority to summon every civil magistrate in the earth. Why? Well, what have we already learned? We've already learned that all authority comes from God. That it originates with him. Let's look at um, Deuteronomy chapter 1. I think that's the right passage You know, and, and it goes back to this that because we have to establish the rules, right? Man did not create civil government. Now, I can say with a, you know, somewhat of a clear conscience, I, I, I've had my conscience swayed so much by the scriptures, I say, you know, I hate the civil magistrate. Well, I, I guess people could understand that, but that, no, I mean, I hate what it is. I hate what it's become. I hate the injustice that it typically is known for. I hate its abuses. But the government itself is not the problem. It's the men and women who are in that role is the problem. And let me show you, let me demonstrate it. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, look at verse 16. All right, let's back up. Um, Look at verse 13, choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes and I will appoint them as your heads. You answered me and said, the thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds of fifties and of tens and officers for your tribes. Then I charged your judges at that time saying, hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously, excuse me, between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with you. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man for the judgment is God's. I want to stop there because the important phrase there is the judgment is for God's. The judgment's God's. What does he mean? What is he saying? What he says is as these human judges perform their duties, they are judging in the place of God. That's how important it is. 
It's how vital it is. And when they don't judge in rightly as they sit in the seat of God, what does it cause God to do? We'll go back to Psalm 2. What did he say? Be careful, show discernment, lest God be angry with you and you perish in the way. Now, brothers and sisters, listen, God's, God does come against nations. And we've, we've already talked about several from the Old Testament, haven't we? We could, come to, we could even talk about Rome in the New Testament. Rome didn't last much longer after it started persecuting Christians. It didn't last that much longer. So we see here from the text that Moses is reminding those judges that they sit in the seat of judgment and they judge in the place of God. That is, God in heaven is rendering justice on earth through men who sit as, just, as judges. Turn to Psalm 82. And I know, beloved, it's, it, it's something that you have to get used to because we have, politics has been so, has become so dirty and, and we don't want to see these two in harmony with one another like religion and politics. Yet they are. They are biblically. They are naturally by the design of God himself. In Psalm 82, look at verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly? and show partiality to the wicked. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's and all of you are the sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Now, this is an interesting psalm. I think after looking at Deuteronomy chapter 1, we are a little, we, I think we see it, we may see it a little differently. Where is God, where, excuse me, where is God rendering judgment? Among the judges. Among the judges. God takes his stand in his congregation. Congregation of who? Assembly of who? He judges in the midst of the what? Rulers. Let that sink in, guys. God sits above the rulers of the earth and he surveys them. He judges them. Notice his indictment. How long will you judge unjustly? Show partiality to the wicked. Vindicate the weak and fatherless, he commands. 
Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Now, I mean, this is, this is the sermon for today, isn't it? This is a sermon that any evangelical preacher could stand up and preach to the civil magistrate today. All of these judges that have abused these uh, January 6th people. And many others who have spoken ill of the civil magistrate and been thrown in prison. This text is a direct finger in the face of those judges who God is now indicting them saying, I judge among the rulers of the earth. And judges do rule. By rendering judgment, they are ruling. And look at verse 5. Do they not know, nor do they understand? They walk about in darkness. That is, they don't have any light in and of themselves. They're not God. They sit in the seat of God. They're recognized as God's own earth because they sit in the place of God. They're not divine. Only God is divine. Only God has inherent light. They have none of this themselves. Notice, though, how bad it gets when these judges don't perform their role. All the foundations of the earth are what? Shaken. Isn't that what's going on right now? Are we not shaken? So what's our answer? In verse 6, he says, I said you are gods and all of you are the sons of the Most High. It doesn't mean they're godly in that sense. It just means they sit in this prominent place. Nevertheless, what does it say in verse 7? You will die like men. Though you hold a, faith, a place of prominence, you're going to die an obscure death. You're going to die like just a commoner. Nobody will remember you. You're nothing. You're not going to be that, that is, you're not going to have that prestige that you think you have, that you own and you think you inherently possess. You don't. You're just a commoner. You will fall like any one of the princes. And then verse 8, this is the, this is the admonition. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For it is you who possesses all the nations. That's our prayer, isn't it? You see how this, our, our political philosophy is now guiding our prayers, isn't it? This is how we pray. This is what we ought to, listen, we ought to be incensed when there's injustice. We all not feel bad about that. We, we did a whole series on abortion, on how, how abortion breaks every one of the, God's moral laws. We should be incensed by those crimes and sins that, that are so heinous they break all of God's law. Look at Proverbs 8. I mean, I could see, you know, some of you going and sitting in front of a council member or something and opening up that passage, opening up that psalm and saying, you know what this psalm says? This psalm says that God is sitting in your midst judging you for your work. That he takes the initiative to judge you and hold you accountable. I, I don't know why we're not doing that. We don't do that. 
see. When we talk about to whom much is given, much is required, well, that includes offices. It, it, like the office of a pastor, the office of a matron, to whom much is given, much is required. And, and yet what we've done in this country is we've turned it upside down. See, we have just thrown off this, this, this Christian jurisprudence and, and we've got the highest officials in the land that have the least accountability when they should have the most accountability because of their position. And yet they are the ones that excuse criminal behavior. But will absolutely strain the gnat to judge the common man and to punish them. There is something very ungodly and wicked about that practice. Proverbs chapter 8 Let's back up to verse 12. He says, I wisdom dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and I find knowledge and and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding power is mine. By me, what? Kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I mean, that's clear as a bell. Scriptures clearly teach that the civil magistrate is under God's authority, no matter who they are or where they are. And they have a very, God sits and judges them uniquely and particularly for their actions. Why? Because they're in authority. Let's see, look at uh, Second Chronicles 19.6. Look at verse five. He says, he appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, consider what you are doing for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do for the Lord your God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Now we couple that with what we have already read and why is that admonition going out to these judges? Because God sits in their assembly and judges them for their judgments. Listen to me. If we preach this, if we herald this, they would hate it for sure. But don't think they would forget it. Don't think they'd forget it. They can excuse it. They can try to ignore it. 
But do not think the word of God doesn't powerfully penetrate that dark heart to just just pain their conscience every time they try to excuse their injustice and their ungodly ways. If we herald this and preach this and, and set this before them, brothers and sisters, it may be like the book of Acts. We may see some civil magistrates just fall dead. God could definitely prove himself in all power and glory, particularly against a blaspheming judge as they ran into in the book of Acts. You know, they love to be, oh, they love to be prominent. They love to be, well, gods, so to speak. They love to be divine. And when they take that credit for themselves, God even is even more greatly offended. Because it's not just that they're neglecting their responsibility. Now they're sitting in God's seat for sure and demanding worship. And that's exactly what Molech is, the God of the state. And what is our state trying to get us to do? Worship it. To see it care for us from the cradle to the grave, so to speak. And there's only one, listen, Christians should absolutely be at the head of this work to see this nation brought back to a good place. So we talk about, brothers and sisters, these principles that Burks brings out. And Burks continues to, to enforce throughout the book that there is only one moral foundation. And that moral foundation, it is not like the st- civil magistrate has one moral foundation that the church has a moral foundation and then the family has another moral foundation, there is only one moral foundation. And that's God's law. God's law. Um, I know some of you have Samuel Willard, his exposition on the catechisms. I know some of you got a hold of that. Um, Go and read, I mean, with everything else that I've given you to read, right? But go and read, I I mean, I love y'all, want to take care, but just go and read his exposition of the fifth commandment and read his exposition of the civil magistrate. And you're going to see that everything I'm telling you is an old hat. This is old Christianity. This is the, these are what Jeremiah called what? The old paths, if you will. And, and, and he lays out this beautiful moral picture of what the civil magistrate owes to God. Because God is the supreme authority. Civil government originated with him. Uh, He brings out, this is Willard, turn in Acts 25, verse 16. I just want to, I probably will bring this out in the Sunday morning sermon, but at the end of the day, I want you to see it here too. 
Because when we talk about um, law, we talk about God's law, we have to talk about it and also recognize it as natural law. Natural law is God's moral law. It's that law that was written upon the hearts of men. It's the law we talked about this morning in the original creation. That God is the efficient cause of all that is good in the earth. And, and Willard brings out that pagan nations can have good laws because of God's natural law. Now, this is where many of some of the people that we've esteemed in the past would have a problem with it. Okay. But look at verse 16 of Acts 25, and he uses this text to point it out. He says, now this is Paul. Paul has been arrested. Paul has made an appeal to his arrest to see Caesar. And so Paul now is working through the channels of the, the justice system, if you will, and he's going to be on his way. He's standing before Festus here. But look at what Paul says in 16. He says, I answered them, that is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. That's pretty good. Have you, never, have you ever heard this judicial concept of meeting, being able to face your accusers? Of course you have. I mean, if you've, if you've done any type of social studies, you've probably heard this. Well, look, Rome had this concept as well. And they weren't building their jurisprudence on God's law, but because God's natural law, this is something that is reasonable. This is something that is good. That if I come and accuse my brother, Aubrey Bowles, of something, he has the right to face me and to answer the charge. Don't you, you know what? We're not getting this today. We don't even have the luxury that many had in the room today in this country. Let's go back to Psalm 2. Let's What is the purpose of the civil magistrate proper? Well, it's to govern manners, public manners, public decency. And that's why there's a law. That's why there's justice. That's why there's a, a system of justice. That's why there's the sword, because those who will not um, uh, conform to those manners, there must be a way to punish them. There must be a way that the civil magistrate, the tool that the civil magistrate has been given by God to punish those who will not conform to these outward manners is the sword. Now, the sword is not just a symbol of death. It's a symbol of authority. It's the symbol of that outward authority. And yet, that's exactly, I mean, what we have lost in the Western world, in the Western culture is what? One of the things we've lost is manners. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, sir, no, sir. The young honoring the old. 
are older. The strong honoring the weak, protecting the weak. The good looking out, looking out for the innocent. Remember, go back to the psalm that we read. What is it? Well, advocate for the weak. Advocate for those who are being abused. Why? Because it's a bad thing when God has to judge a nation because it will not protect the innocent and the weak. And when we do nothing about it, then God says, I shall do something about it. Make no mistake, my brothers and sisters, even though we have a usurper in the White House, he is our scourge. He is judgment upon this land. He has been put there by God to do what? To bring us to our knees and to cry out for justice and for mercy and for grace to try to shake the church out of its lethargy, to shake God's people out of this idea that this world is nothing, that it really doesn't matter. Well, it's mattering to a lot of people when they can't go and, and afford groceries, when they cannot afford basic utilities, the basic implements of life, shelter, clothing, food, we live in a day and time where God's judgment has rained so hot upon this land that just one health care problem, it wipes away a whole family's wealth. Taxation without representation. That got the first civil war, that got the first revolutionary war going. And we're here today with the same thing. It is the right of the civil government to exercise outward manners for the good and the common justice and the peace of the people and for the people. I think Willard points out when he talks about the laws, he says, all good laws are laws good for the people. That's God's law. All good laws are the laws that are good for the people. So when we talk about this Christian idea of civil magistrates, go and read John Calvin in his Institutes, book two, uh, chapter seven and paragraph 10, where he talks about that civil use of God's moral law. And this is a common reformed idea that there are three uses of God's moral law. There is that pedagogical use where God uses his law to spur us on to come to Christ. We're going to look at that in Sunday morning sermon. There's the civil use. Then there's a, obviously a theological use to it as well. There's an evangelical use. There's a, there's a, 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 a Christianized use of the, of the law of God, even though the Christian is no longer under the law as a covenant. We must have civil magistrates agree that God's word is a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path, just like any Christian should do and be willing to do. And I think we are moving in that direction, beloved. There have been crimes exposed. There have been evils exposed that 
has awakened many consciences and many eyes, opened many eyes to the evils that are around us that we thought were far too heinous to ever, ever agree with, we're seeing. And yet we must respond as Christians. See, the, the, the answer isn't the next guy. Because we need to be preaching the whole Christian worldview. We, we, and, and it doesn't mean that, you know, that everybody up there or anybody up there would have to be perfect. There is not going to be one perfect. There's not going to be one perfect. But what we can't have, we can deal with imperfections and weaknesses. But here's what we can't have. We cannot have blasphemers. We can't have blasphemers. Because what does God do to blasphemers? He judges them. And when God comes to judge a civil magistrate, the nation is also wrapped up in that judgment. Why? Because who placed them in office? We have to be diligent, prudent. We have to be discerning. Isaiah 32 and verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. It is this verse right here that the American, the, the civil magistrate built its three forms of government, the executive branch, um, legislative branch, and what's the other one? Legislative, executive. Judicial. Judicial, that's right. It's right there, verse 3322. He's the judge, he's the lawgiver, he's the king. That was the passage they built it on. So that's the fifth principle, or that's the fourth principle. And the fifth principle ties directly into it, and it is this, and we'll expound it next week, that the church must be the conscience of the state. The church must be the conscience of the state. The church doesn't rule the state. The church doesn't exercise authority in the state. The state doesn't recognize, uh, uh, do uh, perform authority, have authority over the church, but they work harmoniously together for the good of society and the people. And the church is the conscience of the state and the state in wisdom would do everything it can to see that the church is free to exercise godly religion because a godly people, a righteous people are a blessed people, are a creative people, typically an educated people, typically more patriotic It's, a, it's not an accident that as we have become more atheistic, we've become less patriotic. As we have become more atheistic, we've become less patriotic. Why? Because Christianity is the foundation of true patriotism. 
to protect. If you have something beautiful, something that God has blessed, something that God has ordained, something that God is blessing, something that God is walking in our midst. But how does God walk in the midst of a nation? Through its judicial system, through its courts, through its kings, through its rulers, all of these things. Why? Because that's how the people are blessed. The people are blessed when we have godly leadership, just leadership. You want to protect it. You want to protect it. When it's precious, you protect what is precious, what is good, what is wholesome. Just like you want to protect your family, your loved ones, you'll protect them with your life because they mean something to you. They matter to you. It's the same as a nation. But when there's not worth protecting, what do people do? They walk away. And, and that, that's understandable. Because you do have to ask yourself, what are you laying your life down for? The new world order? Well, brothers and sisters, we'll open up this idea of the church as the conscience of the state next week. Are there any questions? I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to ask them um, in the last 10 minutes.